If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the... So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey was a radio broadcaster who lived from 1918 to the year 2009. And certainly during his time on this earth, living such a long life and through certain different points of history, he saw a lot of changes in America and in the world. And certainly he was a witness to the moral decline uh, that our country has faced up until the time that he passed away. That, those words that you just heard, he read those on national radio in the year 1965. 1965 was what he foresaw going to happen and the words about the devil. And here we are some 58 years later, Boy, aren't those words that Mr. Harvey spoke incredibly, incredibly true to this very day. As has been stated already, this is a very unique quarter that we get to study. 
uh, going over uh, these particular topics that are going to be our points of interest. Generally, topics uh, like these are ones that, like Jonathan said on Wednesday night, they're topics that people really don't want to talk about. They're topics that nobody really wants to spend any time on because it's not necessarily pleasant to talk about, is it? Talking about the devil, the sin, and hell. People would so much rather talk about love and grace and heaven, as would I. I would much rather preach sermons on those and not have to talk about things like what we're going to talk about this morning. But in order for you and I to have a more full understanding of what God has done for us, in order for us to have more of a full appreciation for what God has done for us, certainly we need to be able to talk about and discuss these more difficult matters as well, such as what we're going to talk about this morning, that being the truth about our enemy, the truth about the devil. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions as it comes to our enemy, as, it talk, as we talk about the devil, when we talk about his nature, we talk about who he is, we talk about uh, what he looks like or what he's able to do, even what he's not able to do. And not, not even that, but there's also quite a few people in our world today who don't even believe in the devil at all. Or maybe they just believe that rather he's just a thought. Or maybe he is just this force or just this, this influence that is out in our world and perhaps it's something that's just not really real in our, in our world today. In fact, the Barner Group did a study back in 2009, and they totaled about 40% of individuals who were believing in the devil, but only that he was just simply a symbol for evil, that he wasn't really real at all. So with the confusion that is in our world as it pertains to who he is and what exactly it is that he's able to do, what is true? What can we know about the devil? What can we believe as it comes to him and what he does in our world today. So many of these things we're going to study over the course of our quarter, but I want to point out four different things that, I, that we know is truth as it pertains to our enemy this morning. Here's number one. The truth about the devil is this. Number one, the devil is not God's equal. The devil is not God's equals. I've said before, a lot of people in the way that they view the devil, there's just so many misconceptions about what they think he is and what he can do. There's a lot of misconceptions about his power and about his personhood, just about who he is and what exactly it is that he is capable of actually doing in this world. And unfortunately, far too many people in our world have this, this skewed vision that the devil and that God Almighty himself are almost like one in the same, or that they are very similar in the power that they hold. In other words, there, it is this huge conflict, right? We see it portrayed in movies and in music and in literature that there is this, this battle between good and evil, between light and darkness, and between these two main powers that be, and that it must be this 50-50 battle, and we don't really know Who's going to come out victorious in the end? And perhaps for some, maybe they don't even believe in him at all. One of the things we have to understand about this is, as we talked about some on Wednesday, the devil, our enemy, as a created being, is not more powerful or greater in nature than the one who is the creator. In fact, if you read through just the first couple chapters of the book of Job, and we're going to go there in just a few moments to begin reading some passages there, but when you read through that, Job paints for us a very clear picture of exactly who the devil is, of exactly who our enemy is, and what it is that he's capable of doing. Not only who he is, but the power that he possesses, or maybe we should say, the power that he possesses and the lack thereof. And that's why I think this is where it's so important for us to understand this, because when we look at the devil, when we think about him, we have to understand how lowly in power and in rule 
He really is. How minute and minuscule he is as it is compared to Almighty God. Because if we think about Almighty God, what do we know about him? What do we know about God's nature and what he's able to do? Three things I think that we need to point out about God before we get into talking about the devil. Number one is this. We understand that God is what we might say omnipresent. Or in other words, God is present at all places and at all times. And I know for us as humans, that's so hard to understand, isn't it? That's so hard for us to grasp and to comprehend, especially for us as parents, because we, with, with multiple children, you guys are trying to be in multiple places at one time, trying to be in more places than you can physically being, because you have so many things to do, but we just simply cannot. But not so with Almighty God. Jeremiah chapter 23, beginning in verse 23, the Bible says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? says the Lord. Psalm 139, beginning of verse 7, and we're going to read a couple of passages here, so if you would mark Psalm 139. But notice beginning of verse 7, where can I go from your spirit, David says, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. You see, David understood to the best of his ability as any human could do, trying to understand the way God's presence worked not only in his time, but also in ours. The fact that God is present everywhere at all times. Again, a, hard, a hard concept hard to understand, one that we really can't understand, but we can't understand it truthfully because we're not God. But then number two, we also understand that God is what we would say omniscient. In other words, God knows everything. You know, you look at, at us today in our society and culture, you take all of the schooling that you could take, take all of the undergrad work and all of the graduate work that you could, that you could take. take, take every letter in the alphabet and place it by your name in the form of some kind of degree that you yourself have gained and have earned through all of your study and education, place all of those things by your name, be, be the smartest person alive, and you would still fall miserably short as it compares to what you know and the knowledge that God has. Psalm 139, again, going back to the very beginning of the chapter, beginning of verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Psalm 147, beginning of verse 4, He counts the numbers of the stars, He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord, mighty in power, His understanding is infinite. Again, the, the concept, a concept that we really can't fully grasp, one that we really can't understand fully because we don't know what it is to be like God. But guess what? Neither does the devil. But then number three, we also understand that God is what we might say omnipotent. In other words, God has and holds all power. Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning in verse 17, Our Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Verse 18, you show loving kindness to thousands, repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. God's power is unmatched. 
God's power is unrivaled. It is unparalleled. No one king or kingdom, no nation, no president can ever hold the power that God holds. And neither can the devil. So why mention these things? As we talk about the nature of God, just who God is, the amazing power, the nature that he himself and he alone possesses, what about the devil? Consider Job chapter 1 for just a moment this morning. Think about the dialogue as you read through these two chapters that you and I have been allowed and privileged to be privy to without even having ever to be there. Job, a righteous individual, verse 1, talks about someone blameless, upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Job is a man who is obedient to God, who does all that he can to make sure that he is in a good standing and in a good relationship with his creator. However, the devil comes lurking. Notice verse 6. Of chapter one. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. What are we finding out about the devil? Number one, the devil's not omnipresent, is he? The devil has to walk to and fro, back and forth, and ever in order to get where it is that he wants to go. The devil is not like God, and that he can just simply be present at all places. But then notice verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless man, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Again, what are we finding out about the devil? This time we understand that the devil is not omniscient or that he doesn't know everything because if he did, what would he know about Job? He would know that Job truly was a righteous man. He would know that Job had cultivated a relationship before all of these horrible and terrible things were going to happen to him. He knew that Job would not falter even if he pushed these persecutions on him. His knowledge is not infinite nor everlasting like that of God's knowledge. Notice verse 11. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Jump to chapter 2. Notice beginning of verse 5. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life again. What are we witnessing as we read through this? The devil is not more powerful than Almighty God himself. Because what does the devil have to do in order to do something against Job? He literally has to go to God and ask God for permission to be able to do anything it is that he wants. He has, to be, he has to ask God for an allowance to be able to go and do what it is that he wishes to do just as a child must ask his or her parent for permission to go and do something. So the same is with the devil. He is not omnipotent as our God is. You see, for us to look at our enemy, for us to look at the devil and to view him as someone who is on an equal level with God or an equal plane with Almighty God is quite frankly to blaspheme the name of our Father. To look at our enemy, to look at the devil as being created by God through who, through who through his own bad decisions and fell away from Almighty God and for us to take the power that God himself alone possesses and give it to the devil and say, here you are, you can be just like Almighty God is simply a slap in the face to our creator. For us to look at God and then to look at the devil, to say that they are in an equal state with one another is to bring down the God of heaven to a level that mocks his very nature. 
The truth about the devil is that he's nothing like God, much less be equal to him in any way, shape, or form. Here's number two. The truth about the devil is that he's not God's equal, but then number two, he has no power over you. The truth about the devil is that he has no power over you. It's an interesting concept when you think about it, because it's a concept that really we seem to understand on every single level but this level right here. Because we understand that if you and I are to break the law, there's consequences because of our actions, aren't there? And those consequences must be dealt with and endured by whom? By the one who is at fault. By the one who chose to break the law. If you're speeding and you get a ticket, who pays the ticket? Not the passenger, but the driver. When we think about children who are having to face disciplinary actions because of their poor choices, what's a common response? Parents, you know this. What do they say? Well, he made me do it. Well, she made me say this. Maybe they had an influence on you. Maybe they encouraged you, but ultimately who made the choice? You yourself did. And this concept is so true in every area of our lives, but especially as it concerns that of the devil and what he is able to do in our lives today. Think about it first from this perspective. God himself cannot make you and I do anything, can he? God the creator, almighty himself, the sustainer and the savior of mankind, he himself cannot even make you and I do anything in our lives. Why else would there be accounts of individuals within, within scripture who disrespect and disobey God and who do according to their own desires and to their own lust that they want to give into? Why else would there be warning after warning in passages of God's word that talk about God commanding his creation to repent? Why else do we see in the lives of others and even within our own lives the poor choices, the bad decisions, and the sin that we so often succumb to? Because ultimately, as the pinnacle of God's creation, we talked about that uh, last week, we as the pinnacle of God's creation still have the free will, don't we? As free moral agents to live and to breathe however it is that we want to in this life. And it's up to us, the consequences that we will reap, whether those be good or bad. In James chapter 1, Jonathan referenced this uh, on Wednesday. I promised I had, my, I had my outline laid out before, before I even saw what he was going to talk about. But it's funny how all of this kind of, kind of goes together. But in James chapter 1, James puts into perspective a couple of things that I think are important. Number one is this. When we understand that God himself cannot tempt you and I. In verse 12 of James chapter 1, James says this, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. When we think about Almighty God, again, trying to gain an understanding of who he is and the nature of what he is like, we understand that God is simply perfect, isn't it? God is so full of holiness. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. And if God himself were to tempt us, what would that say about Almighty God? It would tell us about God and his nature that he would be someone who delights in evil, that he delights in wickedness, in, in that which his own creation tempting them to do something against his own will. And then think about it from this perspective. God would then have to judge us according to his standard which he had just tempted us to disobey and to go against. It doesn't logically make any sense. He in no way could ever be accused of actually doing the tempting of you and I. And as for you and I, or for anyone, to ever accuse our Father of tempting us to do evil is just simply insanity and something that is just not possible. But then, in the second place, when we talk about the devil, 
right? We're talking about the tempter, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3. Certainly, he can tempt us, but we understand that he cannot make us fall prey to that temptation. What does James tell us as you continue reading through here? What does James say as he talks about the one who, the one who makes us fall into temptation? Who is the one who makes us make the bad choices that we make in this life sometimes? Notice verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by what? By his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Certainly temptations are present in our lives. We know those temptations come from the devil. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3 talks about that but if we think about even going back to Matthew chapter 4 we talked about that a little bit in Bible class this morning the devil was the one who tempted Jesus and in all three occasions that are recorded for us did Jesus ever give in to those temptations of course not Hebrews 4 and verse 15 we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Certainly the devil tempts us. Certainly he tempts us to this very day. Certainly he can make our lives more difficult and harder than we wish they ever could be. And absolutely he can have a negative influence on our lives. But something that we have to understand is this. He cannot make you or I or anyone do anything in this world at all. You and I are responsible for our own actions. Just as we have the opportunity and the ability to escape the temptations that are before us, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, we also have the opportunity to give in to those temptations and to transgress the law of God. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Bear it, the idea of withstanding, of enduring, of making it through all the way to the other side. God is not going to take the temptations away, brothers and sisters, but certainly you and I have the ability to persevere through whatever it is that we face. We have to understand the only power that the devil has over us is the power that we allow him to have. He can only do that which we allow him to do as it concerns our lives and what we do in this life. He can only influence us. He can only push our lives to go in a way that we allow him to do so. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we talked about that this morning as well in Bible class. When you read about the fall of man, it's almost comical in some way, isn't it? When you read about the very first sin that's ever committed in Genesis chapter 3, every party involved plays what we might call the blame game, don't they? Adam was confronted in verse 12, and what does he do? He points his finger at Eve, and what does he say? He said, the woman that you gave me, she gave to me the tree and I ate. And so what does God do in verse 13? He, he confronts Eve and what does Eve say? Eve points her finger at the serpent and says, look, the serpent deceived me and I did eat. But what's interesting, when you look at every single party that's involved, Adam, Eve, and even the devil himself, there were consequences for each one involved. Why? Because ultimately every single person is responsible for their own actions. In the exact same way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 tells us we're going to answer for the things that we ourselves have done. Here's number three. The truth about the devil is this. Number three, he does not love you. The truth about the devil is that he does not love you. And I suppose this is a concept that really seems obvious because when we talk about the devil, we're talking about the one who is described for us with so many terms and ideas that you and I know are not good in our world and life today. He's called a liar. He's called the tempter. He's called the evil one, the ruler of this world, a murderer, a liar, so many more things. We're talking about the one who is evil and who is wicked and who wants you to suffer and fail in this life. There's not a friend like the evil devil. 
He's something that we hear is something that we have to understand. The devil is not our friend. The devil does not by any means and in any way want what is best for you in this life or even in the next that is to come. I think that there's a lot of people in our world who believe, they have this skewed idea that if they themselves are so wicked and so evil in this life, if they go against God in every way possible, that somehow, because of how wicked and terrible that they have been, they will be able to go in and enter into some kind of alliance or friendship with the devil and become best friends with him. That somehow, maybe hell won't be so horrible because you were so terrible in this life. And that when you get to eternity, you're going to be able to sit on your throne in this place called hell and just be great friends with the devil. Brothers and sisters, when we read about hell in scripture, it is described for us a place that does not resemble any kind of happiness, joy, or peace, or anything that is remotely close to any kind of comfort whatsoever. When we talk about hell, why do we not think, even the world understands this concept, when we talk about hell, why do we not think about a place that is full of, you know, birthday cake and rainbows and unicorns? Why do we not think about happy things? Why is it when we talk about the hell always associated with hell are all evil, terrible, and horrible things? Because we understand that hell is a place of wickedness. It's a place of torture and all things that are evil and terrible. A couple of passages to consider. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation chapter 20, beginning of verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever. Do we need to go on? Passage after passage in the Bible that showcase for us and speak to the horrible, terrible nature of hell, a furnace of fire, wailing and gnashing of teeth, a fire that is never quenched, tormented day and night. Hell is not a place that we want to go to. And for people to think that hell is just going to be this great place where they can just spend the rest of their eternity and just be wicked with the devil and just party it up with him is to have a serious lack of knowledge and understanding of what hell is really going to be like. But then within that same realm of thought, people also have a very grave misconception about hell and the relationship that the devil himself has with the place called hell. Not even just within their own relationship about hell and what it might could look like for them if they go there. But there's people who believe that the devil is some kind of reigning ruler over this place called hell. That hell is just going to be his domain. It's going to be his playground. It's going to be his time to party and to do whatever it is that the devil wants to and just live it up there in this place of evil and wickedness for the rest of eternity. But you see, people who believe that certainly have a great misunderstanding about the nature of hell itself. Because when we talk about hell and the relationship that the devil himself has with hell, he didn't speak it into existence, did he? He didn't design it. He is not the one who would determine who would spend their eternity there. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, the Bible tells us that he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. 
You see, God the creator, God the one who is, is the one who created this place to begin with for the devil and his angels. And guess what? The devil knows that. The devil knows that this place was created for him. The devil knows that he is the one who is supposed to go there. And because of that, he wants you to go with him. He doesn't want to go there alone. You see, the devil is what we might call a social butterfly. The devil is a social being. The devil doesn't like being alone, and he understands that going to this place called hell is, means he's going to be there without anybody else. So he's going to try to get as many people to go with him as he can, just as you and I are striving for heaven, and just as you and I are trying to make it a point in our lives to take as many people there with us as we can, so is the devil trying to take as many people to hell as he can. The devil is not your friend. He's not your companion. He's not your buddy. John chapter 8 and verse 44 tells us that he is a liar and he wants you to suffer in hell with him. But then number four, the truth about the devil is this. He ultimately will not be victorious. I know this hasn't been, I guess, all that happy of a sermon. Uh, last Wednesday, Jonathan talked about how we don't really volunteer and happily talk about subjects like this because they're not really that fun to talk about. And yet, certainly, they are necessary to discuss, more so than just fulfilling the command of Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, talking about preaching the whole counsel of God, but also in being completely aware of who our enemy is, what he is capable of doing, and how you and I are able to overcome. How can we make heaven our home so that our destination will not be the same as the devil's? How do I defeat the enemy? Here's number one. Three things I want you to very quickly think about. Number one is this. How do I defeat him? I do so first off before anything else by remembering that he himself is already defeated. Go back again in your minds, back to Genesis chapter 3. You remember the prophecy that was made about his defeat from the very, very beginning of time, back in chapter 3 and verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the capital S, seed, that's being talked about here in Genesis chapter 3? We're talking about Jesus the Christ. You, devil, yes, you're going to strike a blow and you're going to bruise his heel, but don't walk away laughing. Because ultimately, your head's going to be crushed. The devil is already a defeated enemy, one who is destined to lose, one who is destined to be conquered and to be vanquished. First John chapter 3 and verse 8, what Jeremy read for us just a few moments ago, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, notice this, that he might destroy the works of the devil. It's the complete opposite, isn't it, of you and I as Christians. As faithful children of God, are we not victors already? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is defeated. We are victors. We are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum as it pertains to him and what he is able to do. If we want to defeat him in our lives, we have to remember that he is already defeated. Here's number two. I have to be able to resist him. And I think naturally this is the very next thing. Just because you and I understand in our minds the nature of the devil and that he is already a defeated being, that doesn't mean that he's decided to take a vacation till the end of time, does it? It doesn't mean that just because he knows that he's already lost and that he's not going to win and come out victorious doesn't mean that he's just decided to give up and not give a care about anyone or anything because it's rather quite the opposite. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. The devil again is very much a social being who wants to have company with him 
as he goes into this place called hell. He wants you to be defeated just like him. He wants you to be conquered just like him and to ultimately end up in hell. Because of that, Peter continues on. And in verse 9, he says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Christians, we have been charged to stand strong against the devil, to stand strong against his schemes, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through verse 13. But the Ephesians writer there, the apostle Paul, doesn't tell us to withstand him and just leave it at that, but then he tells us what we need to do in order to withstand him by taking up the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And when we do that, James chapter 4 and verse 7 tells us that the devil is going to what? He's going to turn on his heels and he's going to flee from us if we resist him. But then number three, how do I defeat the devil? I have to thirdly know the word of Almighty God. We've referenced this already. We've referenced the temptations of Jesus, how the tempter came to him in Mark chapter four and Luke chapter four, how the tempter used the three things that we are told to be very wary of in First John chapter two, verses 15 through 17, talking about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And yet, as we read about Jesus Christ resisting each one of these temptations, what does he do? How does he do it? He does it through his knowledge of the word of God. You see, if you and I want to be able to defeat the wicked one, if you and I want to be able to come out victorious and on top of the devil in this life, we have to know the word of Almighty God. Psalm 119 and verse 11, thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. How do I stay in a good relationship with God? How do I equip myself? so that I can ultimately withstand the temptations of the devil. I hide the word of God deep down into my heart. The truth about the devil, four things. He's not, he's not God's equal. He's not, he has no power over you. He's not your friend, and ultimately, he will not be victorious. We understand that hell was created for him. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, it wasn't created with you in mind. It wasn't even created with the wicked people in our world in mind. It was simply reserved only for him, and he knows that. He understands that is where his destination is going to be. And because of that, he wants to take as many people with him as he can. He's going to be there, and he wants you to go and be there with him too. Don't give him the pleasure of adding you to his list of people that he has already taken that he's, and that he is going to take into that place for the rest of eternity. The first step that you can do in order to prevent that from happening is by becoming a child of God and submitting your life in, uh, to him and to his word. Maybe that's the case for you this morning and maybe you want to become a child of God knowing that you're on your way to heaven and because of that, you're not going to go to the place called hell which is reserved for the devil. If that's the case for you, maybe perhaps you've heard the word of God, you believe it, you're ready to repent of your sins, confess Christ's precious name and put him on in baptism. Know that we can do that and assist you with that this morning. Or maybe you're here perhaps as a Christian and maybe your life is not what it should be. Perhaps there's sin in your life and maybe you're not living in harmony with the gospel. Maybe you've been allowing the devil to rule and to reign in your life other than Jesus Christ. If that's the case and you want to turn your life around, repent of your sins, know that you can do that as well. We'll pray for you and we'll do all that we can to help you and to encourage you. If you have a need this morning, would you come? It's together we stand and as we sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.